out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the American drummer and singer-songwriter. It is David Hild, who'd worked with various bands that you're going to find out about, but also was in The Girls. They released a single in 1979 titled Jeffrey, I Hear You, with the B-side, The Elephant Man, who was also in The Wooden Birds and collaborated with various people, including Dave Thomas, who was in Pear Ubu, and also worked with the likes of Kramer and Ralph Carney. But you're going to find out more about that and much more. So look, with uh, you know several minutes of casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. David, it's over to you. Well, I really was an audiophile for, for being young. Um, you know, I'm, I was born in 51, so I'm, 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 I'm older than you are. Um, my awakening was the usual stuff, definitely a lot of British invasion stuff in the sixties, but I loved even before that, I loved, um, the playmates, little, little Nash Rambler, you know, those kind of crazy songs, um, big John, you know, all the things on the pop radio. Cause I was a kid, you know, and you listen to this stuff. So you'd listen to, um, um, uh, um, Roger Miller, you know, dang me, hang, you know, all that stuff. And, yes. and so we listened to a lot of country music, but my parents loved, uh, big band music and they love the, um, um, uh, Martin Denny stuff. You know, they love that stuff because we lived in Hawaii and all these exotic places in Japan. So I had all these crazy things. And then I listened to, um, um, a lot of, like I said, uh, Benny Goodman and that kind of stuff. And then my awakening, you know, it was probably the Beatles and the Stones. But then I also um, really, uh, you know, after that started listening to the, uh, I think the move and then definitely soft machine, the first two, two records. And I got a little more esoteric, but, you know, here in America, I loved love, uh, Arthur Lee's thing. Yes. I loved spirits. The, this, I love spirit. The first two or three records of them. Yes. Um, I mean, even Naz. Um, yes. Going back to just or, or pausing on spirit. Yeah. That was one of those bands. I, I, I sort of felt like they were the, one of the first bands I discovered for myself when I was looking through this, my brother mm -hmm. had a, a rock book and, and I think there was like these essential albums and there was this one about spirit and, and no one had ever spoke about them. Mm -hmm. And there was this album, 12 dreams. And I sort of managed to get, yeah, hold which of is a, a later one for me. Yeah. Yes. Mechanical world. The first one, the first two, uh, records. And of course, even before that, the first records, a uh, Jimi Hendrix experience uh, first, and then the door, I think the doors blues project, and then Jimi Hendrix's uh, are you experienced uh, the first, I, we were listening to wind cries, Mary on, on, on uh, AM radio, they were playing that late at night. And I thought he was a bass player, you know, I had no idea who this guy was, but it was such a terrific song. And, yes. uh, but I, like I said, I, I bought more records than the average person. I started listening to, to a lot of, a lot more stuff. I love the kinks and I had a lot of their albums and I, I loved, uh, Proco Harum and, and Manfred Mann, you know, so I loved a lot of British stuff. And like I said, I kind of, my brain got twisted by Hendrix and then probably by the soft machine. They were the band that got me listening to more experimental stuff. Then I started, I, I, somebody turned me on to Miles Davis and Bitches Brew. I listened to um, 
the Mahavishnu stuff. You know, I was really into Tony Williams, you know, who's an amazing drummer who'd played with all these bands. And I loved Herbie Hancock for some reason. I loved Maiden Voyage. And I even got, had the Brian Auger Trinity version of that because I loved it so much. Um, so that's one of my favorite songs and still is probably. And then I loved um, a lot of good R&B. I loved uh, uh, Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. And so, I, you know, I listened to a whole lot of stuff, just a whole hodgepodge. I loved Joni Mitchell. Um, yes. You know, I you know I loved uh, Neil Young. I loved Buffalo Springfield um, before that, and um, really got into um, um, like I said the whole experimental thing in psychedelic stuff. And we didn't, you know, I left them out, but obviously Pink Floyd. Uh, I was a Sid Barrett freak. I loved the early Pink Floyd, and I still love Pink Floyd, but I love that stuff. Yes, did you? But um, I didn't really. What go, go part ahead. of what part of America did you grow up in? In the in well, it's odd. My father was an Air Force colonel, so we lived all over the place. Mainly, uh, we, we I lived in Hawaii, Japan, Arlington, Virginia. I think first before we even moved out of the states. Then I lived in Texas. Then I lived in um, we lived in California for a little bit, but I lived mainly in uh, in our and we moved to Orlando from Texas when I was in the fifth grade. So, um, so then we stayed, then I, then that's where I grew, grew up and I'm still, I'm back here now. Yeah. But, um, did, yeah, so, I mean, so, so I, mean, I was born here. Actually. So, yeah. So you must've, um, Hawaii. God, we only dreamed of play, such places. Well, we're, yeah. We're a service. I was a service brat. So I took it for granted that everyone had those, you know, would be in these amazing places. We were in Tokyo, you know, for a few years and then we were in Hawaii in, and then on, on Oahu, you know, in Honolulu. And we were there when it became a state, too. So that's how long ago it was. My God, that's amazing. So did your parents um, have any musical kind of direction? Did they Did they used to like Yeah, music? like I said, they loved to dance. They loved big band music. I mean, I, I can remember my father and I listening to Gene, Gene Krupa stuff and and uh, and Buddy Rich and, you know, and listening to, like, all these amazing, like I said, Sandy uh sandy denny i kept saying sandy denny is fairport convention david yes. um martin denny you know all those exotic polynesian things he used to do because they wanted to take a little bit of a hawaii back with them so when yes. i was in when i we were back in orlando we would listen to all this great stuff and they loved even chubby checker they loved the twist you know all that stuff my parents loved to dance i mean they went out dancing twice a week nice so yeah there's oh, yeah. always music and they loved it because i wanted to play drums when I was in the fifth grade. And so, you know, I, I, they bought a trap set for me. I had a, I had a, a Ludwig super classic, like Ringo has kit, you know, they bought all these stuff, which was over a thousand dollars, you know? Wow. They loved that's... the fact that I wanted to play music. Yeah. They, they encouraged me and I'd play along to, to stuff. I'd play along to jazz. I'd play along to rock. I used to play along to the spirit record we're talking about. Um, and then I, you know, would play, you know, the Stones and the and, and and really not the Beatles for some reason. I didn't play along to the Beatles, but I played along to Stones records. Yeah, um, I don't know why. Interesting. Yeah, with the spirit, I think because it was rock and roll. Because the you know the other thing was forty fives were a huge big thing in my life. My friend and I used to go to what we called it was a a forty five junkyard. It was basically jukeboxes that they took all the records out and re re you know re sorted them with newer records and left them out and out in this yard. And I could find you know forty fives for a dime 
of like Screaming Jay Hawkins, I Put a Spell on You. I mean, all these amazing singles. And I used to just take them home with me and listen to a lot of that stuff. So I, I was into 45s. I had the box, the little kits with the handles, you know, for all your 45s. So this was the days of when we used to, you know, I'd go, you could go to the Woolworths and buy that kind of crap, you know. So I would buy two or three records a week, you know, nice. just singles. Yeah. So, yeah, I was all I was a, a, an audiophile early on, you know, <laughs> since I was like, you know, in the in the, you know, fifth grade or something. God, that's you know? amazing. So, I, so I loved music. Do you still have all those singles, by the way? <laughs> no. <laughs> I lost all my record collections, either to selling it for, for money, you know, to get uh, food <laughs> or just <laughs> trading in and doing stuff. No, I, I, it's just, it's, I don't have any of it. I think I have Terry Ork's um, Little Johnny Jewel for television. I have the, the A and the B side of that, you know, the part one and part two. Still, right. a, a, I bought 10 copies of that and gave them to my friends. Because I love television so much. But that was, you know, and that was about the time, I guess it was a little bit before I started the girls, we started it. Yeah. So, did you have yeah. any? Because one thing that often makes a huge difference is an older brother or sister. Did you have any other? Yeah, or... my older brother loved, um, you know, music too. And he had like, uh, it was really funny. He had uh, more crooners, you know, you know, Fabian. Uh, he had Bobby Vinton, which I really didn't like him, but he had Gene Pitney, who I loved, and, and Johnny Rivers. Yes. So, you know, and he had Gene, Gene Pitney albums, and then he had Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, and then, you know, he had Sam and Dave and that kind of stuff, too, and and the Supremes and, and that kind of stuff. So he had more, like, just pop stuff, but he had some really cool stuff, and and we 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 liked uh, the Love and Spoonful. I think he had he had a lot of a lot of their stuff. And then Paul Revere and the Raiders. Remember that? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Who we were great. They were really. We had. A, I was in a band in junior high school playing drums, and we had we were called the Redcoats. It was a terrible little junior high school band, but we did Manfred Mann, Duo Diddy, and I was the lead. I was singing drums. Yeah, singing and and, and drumming. So I was a singing drummer even back then. And uh, we did Paul Revere just like me, and you know it's like the early days. Yeah. But those were the days, you know. The music was so great, you know. And uh, well, absolutely. So. And and every day was well, every year. I mean, there were so many records that came out. Yeah. So look, so at that point, you were born fifty one. So you were at that perfect age where you suddenly saw the the sixties become quite technicolor, and uh, the summer of love of sixty seven. Did you uh, at this stage were you still living at home in sort of sixty seven? Yeah, I graduated from high school in sixty nine, and then I went to uh, this. To Boston, no, no, I didn't go to Boston. I went to Ringling School of Art in Sarasota, Florida, and that was sort of my awakening. Um, they had a, just up the street was a place called New College, and there was a sort of a free school. You could decide what your curriculum was. You could go to Europe for a year if you wanted to, but they had a lot of uh, live music there. And they had a band called Bethlehem Asylum, which was like a almost like Spirit. They were a jet, sort of a fusion rock band. And um, they 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 were really sort of eclectic, and they were fun. They were really fun. Yeah. And um, and so I, you know, I got I got turned on to that. But you know, at that we did we went to a lot of concerts back then. Yes. We were able to go see Led Zeppelin. We were able to go see T Rex. Kind of the really sad Mark Boland frisbee with a cape. You know, kind of <laughs> really sad days because I love Tyrannosaurus Rex when he was just doing his like folky stuff and acoustic stuff. But um, anyway, you know, and we'd see just about anything. And we, we saw Captain Beefheart and the Magic Band. Uh, and we we all go to 
we go to Tampa, Florida, usually to have most of these venues, but we did have a local venue that I had a friend, there was a young promoter and he got spirit to come. And unfortunately his, the venue, um, they, they blew out the uh, PA in the very beginning of the concert. So they ended up just goofing around. And of course they're John Locke and Ed Cassidy. They're amazing jazz guys, you know, and they yes. just jam. And they just played amazing music. A lot of people were disappointed, but I loved it. You know, yeah. I thought it was amazing. And I got got a chance to with some really uh, attractive women that were with me from the art school. We went over and pretty much I sat on uh, the drum kit because uh, uh, Ed Cassidy's drum kit had these weird elevated bass drums, you know, and all this really weird stuff. And um, I think Randy California or, uh, or Wolf, whatever his name was back then, he he was kind of, uh, he was totally out of it. You know, he was really, really stoned. But uh, yes. I got to talk. I, I, to I, I, thought, I did see him a couple of times, once as a someone in the solo period yeah. in the 80s, which was pretty... So I didn't really talk to him. He just kind of looked at me with this great glazed eye look. But everybody else in the band was really wonderful. Uh, Mark and... Anders is whatever his name was, the bass player. That's um, right. Yes. There yeah. You go. And then I, John I, Locke. Yes. But I that, love John Locke and Ed Cassidy because they were like jazzers, you know. Yes. So they were really, really fun. But Ed, Ed sat me on his drum kit, you know, and, and talk, explained to me, you know, why he had things set up and everything. It was amazing. Well, so that was fun. I was going to And then ask we put you. on a show. We, we put on the Almond Brothers came and played for like 25 minutes or something. We got them to play. So I, I, I uh, was that was my first time and first and only time of doing a, a, a promotion of some sorts to come. And we had to go to the city council and have have them approve it. I brought some vets that were just back from Vietnam to guilt them into you know, letting us have a permit to have some live music for the day. So the Owen Brothers came and played for like, you know, like I said, 20, 25 minutes. This is the original band. Everybody was still alive. Yes. God, that's amazing. Because I was going to and ask they were you. They were really nice to us because we were just a bunch of kids, you know. So I know. But then that was quite a good law. So this was the late 60s period that you were putting. Yeah, this kids. was 1969, 70, probably. Blimey, that's amazing. I, I was going to ask you what your first gig was, but you probably can't remember now, can you? Because it was No, for, for, for me, my first gig. Yes. My first gig was a country and Western band when I was in high school. I put my name up at a, at, at a, at a music store and I used to go to the Joe Morello, Joe Morello uh, Ludwig drum clinic there. So I uh, would go watch him lecture and stuff and pay an absorbent amount of money to just listen to him rant and rave. And he's a really negative kind of guy. So it was kind of funny in, in, in retrospect, but I put my, uh, name up you know and number you know to get gigs because my father was saying well you know he spent all this money on you you need to make some money so this country and western family uh had me come rehearse they they were kind of ridiculous awful i wasn't really into that kind of music but they did play a little bit of rock and roll like johnny be good and stuff so we'd play tonky uh honky tonks and and these uh really ter terrible you know shitholes and uh, so I did about three or four gigs with them, you know, and and my parents would wait up at three in the morning. They drop me off at, in the station wagon and, and unload my drum kit and everything. So it was pretty funny. That was my that was my first professional gigs besides when I was in junior high school playing, playing some shows with a really terrible uh, band that we called the Redcoats in yes. homage to the Paul Revere and the Raiders. <laughs> I know. That's quite nice. I mean, because you were that perfect age, though, when you suddenly were probably conscious of the whole sort of, Mon you know, the Summer of Love, Monterey Pop Festival. Yeah, thing. but I, like I said, I, 
I, I listened to the, you know, the early uh, Ben Morrison, them, I had all the 45s, you know, on Parrot Records. I used to listen to Mystic Eyes and Gloria and, all that and play all that stuff. So I was a little bit of a fake book. I could play pretty much anything. Yes. You know, I, I really could because I played all kinds of and listened to all kinds of music. And what was it like at that point, though, when you're in your late teens or teen, you know, that that period? And then suddenly, you know, Hendrix, Morrison, Joplin die, Brian Jones die. You had, you know, the, the Charles Manson moment and then, you know, Altamont because the 60s, you know, and then the Beatles break up. Mm-hmm. Did you think, oh, that's a bit, and you know, this is just no. My- my association, I'll tell you something that was interesting for me, and it sort of played out in the whole nerdiness of the girls, is that um, uh, uh, George Conda, who you know, now is an incredibly famous artist, George said, he was 19 years old once, he s- said to me as far as our, our, our perspective, he said that um, we're the, the guys least likely to be carrying a gun in a crowd. You know, and and that was kind of how I felt about the hippie thing, because I went to art school as a sort of a uh, very straight looking. They thought I was a narc, I think, because I didn't have long hair. I never fit into any of it. And there was kind of a they were sort of a cult, the people that were dressed in the bell bottoms and the whole bit. Now, eventually I grew my hair and sort of joined into that. But in the in the beginning, they were you know more, you know, sort of uh, I was sort of cast out of that. I didn't fit in. And so I laughed when when we set out to do the girls and do music, we were sort of those kind of people. We weren't part of the scene. We were kind of nerdy, you know, definitely weren't a group. I mean, the idea of a groupie for the girls when we were actually playing was a guy tripping on mushrooms. We know it was just completely not like the normal. And Boston was very, very normal. You know, which is ironic because, you know, they had this brilliant Jonathan Richmond and the Modern Lovers, but he really by the time the scene was happening, he was crawling on the ground, uh, um, uh, doing, I'm a little dinosaur, you know, um, you know, is actually my first show that I saw when I moved up to go to Boston museum school, because I got accepted into Boston museum school was to go to uh, the drum store. It was called Jack's drum shop. And then up the street was Berkeley school of music. And, in the, the drum shop, you know, when I was, I was going to, I was thinking about putting together a trap, a drum kit, because my drum kit, my, my my friend actually, Robin Amos and the girls went into my parents' house, gra- got my drum kit and sold it for money. <laughs> he sold my this super classic kit, which I've never forgiven him over the years. So that was <laughs> sort of, that's what it's been a bone of contention with it. But anyway, so I went to Jack's drum shop and I saw a, a an advertisement that they were going to have a concert in their basement, which is literally just a little basement with folding chairs. And then um, the Boston Phoenix, which was the art and, and music mag, you know, that was in Boston, they had a, a big article about, you know, Jonathan Richmond and the Modern Lovers. And this is before 76, before the berserkly John Cale demo came out of the Modern Lovers. So um, I, you know, read all this stuff about Jonathan thinking it was going to be like a rock thing or something. And I went down there and he's down there with some friends and he's, he's got inflatable balloons that he bought at the supermarket or something. And they're, they're attached all to their appendages, you know, they're wearing them on their wrist there. And he's uh, on the ground going usually to pretty girls, um, you know, doing I'm a little dinosaur and th- those kind of songs. And I was just, I thought it was amazing. And I was just like thinking, holy crap, I could do this because you know? <laughs> I never yes. thought about doing anything 
as far as a rock band or any of that, you know, I'd done it when I was young, yes. but you know, he was, he was amazing. And so I, and then ended up when I went to, to, to when I went to school, I'll be getting into t- t- talking about the girls now, but when I went to school, uh, my first semester wasn't anything happening for, for music, but I decided to take a, a, a the next semester decided to take uh, electronic music. And in that class, was a guy named Peter Dayton that started a band called The Pest. It was a woman named Pseudo Carroll, who I first started playing with, and then Mark Dagley. And at the time, Mark Dagley was hanging out with uh, Jonathan Richmond, and they were sort of busking. They were down in Harvard Square playing uh, outside for music. I mean, for, for, for money, playing, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I think, acoustic, you know. And they're probably in the train stations and stuff, but they were, you know, that's so the market already, you know, met and, and, and knew, and knew Jonathan. So it's really been, so Jonathan Richmond plays a big role in sort of influencing what becomes the girls as far as Mark and I, who are the main songwriters. Yes. And, um, so, cause, it, cause I don't think a lot of people figured that out. We did a song called pedestrian walk, which is kind of like modern lovers. But other than that, a lot of a lot of people didn't didn't see the connection. And, no. um, so was that band you just said there was? Did you say it was the past or past? You said the was, past was the uh, it was like a, a three piece rock band that, uh, that that Peter Dayton did in Boston, right? And they had a song called um, um, Oh God, it's screw the. Um, oh. What's the, it's the dead thing. Um, I'm so, uh, this is, I'm having my senior moment now too, David. Oh, we um, all have them. Don't worry. Yeah. I'm, I'm, oh, I was just, so, <laughs> I was just, so it's La Past. It wasn't La Past. La Past. Yeah. L-A-P-E-S-T-E. So okay. it's two, two words. Yes. Well, I'll, I'll go and check that out. I was always kind of curious when you hear these things. You think, oh, I must just have a look at that. Yeah. Yeah. They were a big favorite in the area. At Boston, uh, yeah, there was, there was, but you know, the whole scene was. uh, Speaking of the Modern Lovers, John, John Felice, who had been an original member of the Modern Lovers, that had a band called the Real Kids, and they were doing kind of an early Stones thing. But what I was getting at about the Boston scene is most of the scene was not that progressive. It was kind of appropriated, kind of doing, you know, things that had already been done, and mainly just rock. Nothing wrong with it. There was a great band called DMZ who uh, was on Sire Records, they got they got signed to Sire, who was doing like a sort of MC5 Stooges, you know, and they had a lot of guitar players in the band and they were really good and had a wonderful drummer, one of the better drummers in the area. My God, and, because, uh, because I know I've done a few um, interviews with people from Boston and also this the guy who did this photographic book, which was came out. Um, yeah, I, I, I heard about that, yeah. For two years, and I didn't realise that Boston was such a sort of a stopover for all the, the kind of the British bands who were coming over. You know, oh, absolutely. Like, you know, so everybody played there, and it's an amazing photographic record of that oh, yeah, time. So yeah. um, so, so this is where you was. this is your formative teen and 20 period was in Boston. Right. Well, well, um, yeah, that's, that, that's where I went. And I was going to Boston Museum School, but like I said, the first year or so so that was like 74 75 and then around like i said because i think i think at that time in 74 75 is when i went to the to the john the jonathan richmond thing that was down in the basement and uh and then i started kind of um 
you know, thinking about more of the music stuff, because I think just about in 75, maybe was, you know, that, I think, think that's when they started doing concerts. It was when the punk new wave started to happen in America. And the, you know, the, the big influences for, for, for me and for most of the people that lived in Boston was the Ramones came for the first time to play in Cambridge at this place called the club. And, Every everyone that was any, any anybody that either had a, was in a band or were going to do a band, and I hadn't done a band yet, and I was with a, a what was going to become Human Sexual Response. This is this band I was with, and and we we just that was we blew our minds. We just said we're going to do a band, you know. After that, and uh, so 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 um, so they were the uh, the uh, the guys that inspired everybody. It was just it was amazing, and because. Yes. Uh, so that was so the band. That, of, that was the band, a human sexual response. Did you say with a kind of yeah, and, yeah. So they weren't a band yet, and uh, and uh, certainly the girls weren't weren't a band yet either. And I hadn't really gotten together with Mark Daly, but a couple times we jammed together, kind of talking about maybe doing a band. And then everything sort of fell to fell into place. Yeah, and then. Well, I I and, and, I've, thought, I've I've managed to do an interview with a couple of those guys actually. Oh and yeah, and and so with humor and sexual response, my connection with them was I was friends with them, and they were auditioning uh, musicians for their band, and they and and I think they already had the name Human Social Response, and so I, I I would set up a strong a small drum kit and go into Brookline where they lived and help audition guys, and uh, so eventually you know they they, they put their band band together. Yes, and then uh, and then the, the the way the girls started it was like at, in electronic music class. Carol Carol Minke, um, uh, pseudo Carol, uh, and I were playing sort of these guerrilla performances where we just show up in the library and set up, and then they throw us out. Um, yeah. And she used to wear like a complete. She looked like a Diane Arbus photo of a little girl wearing. Um, a bathing cap, goggles, a bathing suit, flippers. I mean, she's just, it was amazing. And she couldn't play guitar, but she played guitar. And then I just played drums. And then she, she would do these amazing songs. Like I want to be your suitcase. And, um, um, I got a crush on you. Just amazingly cool stuff. And then, um, I decided, you know, I wasn't thinking about even being in a band. I was thinking about just being like, producing a band kind of putting together a group or something so at that that time that's what we started to do i found a really good drummer who ended up becoming the drummer for human sexual response you know he also was the drummer for sugar malcolm travis oh and he my was god yes i've seen so him I, live so he I, was I, amazing. Just, I so so i put him together because mark dagley had known him so like i said and, and so mark and i were starting to hang out together and so we decided to put a band together so um but that happened after the fact. So we had all these people and we were auditioning with, with Carol. And then I occasionally I'd play drums because I had set up a drum set, but then Malcolm came and he had his drum kit. So I was no longer even doing anything, but I was writing lyrics coming up with us with songs and stuff and everything. But Carol, Carol just just didn't think I was cool. And so Carol fired me from my own project basically <laughs> and just sort of she had a friend of hers uh she's from staten island and friend of her from i think from new york city came and basically they told her after the show that i've got to go you know he's just not cool so oh, anyway man. so she she informed everybody that you know she wanted to have me fired and everything else so luckily for me the band was basically just mark and malcolm and stuff so they said no to her so she sort of left and they called me and said 
we didn't fire you, you know, we want to do something with you, you know? And uh, so they wanted me to be a lead singer or something. And I, I, and that just wouldn't work. So I, you know, I was thinking, well, I'm probably not going to do anything, but then I came up with the idea human sexual response really needed a drummer and they lived a couple of doors down on my street. Everybody lived around the same area. So we walked Malcolm down to human sexual response and introduced them and the, you know, the rest is kismet and it worked out perfect for them. So now yes. there was a, there was an opening for me to play drums with Mark. So that's how the girls started. It was just us two. And we were, you know, and I had all these songs that I'd put together because I wanted to let Carol just, you know, blossoms. So Carol eventually got together with two of our art professors at the Boston Museum School and formed a band called The Rentals. Mm -hmm. And um, so so she she did just fine. And uh, she definitely could be with folks she thought were cool. And uh, <laughs> so and I loved her. She just she didn't really like me, but I, I loved her. You know, even when she threw me out of the band, I thought she was great. Oh so, my but, God. but she yeah. but she inspired me to to actually do the girls and, and, and get off my butt and become, you know, uh, the sort of singer and drummer for this band. Cause I really didn't have any ambition to do, do any of that. You know, I'd rather listen to records, you know? Yes. So, um, you know, well, it, it's but always... also at the time we were listening to lots of import records. I was listening to, to lots of brain metronome, uh, Noi, um, um, uh, we were listening to, I actually, I was a Vandergraaff guy. I loved, Peter Hamill. And so I was listening to Vandergraaf Generator and stuff like that. No, no, nobody else in the band was, but I was, you know. And so so anyway. What, so what about King Crimson? Did you? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. And I should have mentioned that uh, when, when, when I was you know, in 69. Yeah. Everybody was going crazy. A bunch of, I didn't go, but a bunch of my friends went down to Miami to see uh, uh, King Crimson when they played at the University of Miami. And, and they did, uh, 21st century schizoid man and everything and everybody was talking about because yeah i had the records i loved them and actually to be honest with you i was thinking of myself when we were doing the girls you know when i wasn't going to be part of it when it's going to be pseudo carol and mark dagley and malcolm travis i thought of it being peter sinfield and just writing lyrics and stuff that was going to be my thing i didn't really want to participate yes since i was fired you know (laughs) i decided to do the girls so the girls happened because one of the members fired me and then I decided to have the guts to get on the drum and, and drums and play. So, so that's how it happened. And did it was Carol, really wacky. And did Carol ever sort of record anything that's, um, yeah, yeah, she did she, through, through, through the rentals. She, she has some singles on, I think it's, um, I got a crush on you. And I don't know if she ever did. I, I want to be a, your suitcase, but th- they were the two of them that I love. The lyrics were fantastic. Oh, I'll have to try and, um, Oh yeah. Yeah. They're still, they're available. I think Jane and Jeff Hudson who were married at the time were the two, uh, members of the, the uh, of the rentals. They had a couple of other members and then eventually Carol left and went back to Staten Island. I think she became like a bodybuilder or something really great. Typical wow. Carol, something, something really wild. And uh, she was just amazing. Yeah, I'm just so sorry that I never could get close to her. She just didn't think I was cool for some reason. But anyway, I think she, in the back of her mind, I think she just knew that there was something, there was better things ahead for her. So we were just the two piece, you know, and and, and then we uh, sort of auditioned and got a bass player just for one gig, our very first gig, which is at a strip joint. It was a strip club in the combat zone in Boston called the Birdcage. And we played on the uh, the riser behind the bar where the strippers and they had dancers. 
And I think they, they had stripper dancers during our set. We did, we opened with Born to be Wild. But we were playing with a woman named Carmen Wiseman, who was going by Carmen Monoxide at the time. And Carmen was friends with um, Willie Loco Alexander, sort of the more established Boston, you know, rockers and stuff. So she got embarrassed after the show and quit, you know, because she just thought we were we were just too nerdy to be seen with. So our, this theme that I'm talking about, we just the girls did not fit in. We were we love being nerds, you know. We're not cool, you know. Yes. Uh, it's like the the, the, the Philip Seymour Hoffman uh, 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 deal in Almost Famous, where he's playing the, the critic and he's going, uh, "You're not cool. We're not cool." <laughs> you know, <laughs> and that was sort of part of the deal. So for a while, the girls were a two piece, uh, and then a three piece for a little bit for one gig, and then Robin Amos, I got him and his friend to come up, and now they were doing electronic music. Robin was an EML synthesizer player that I knew from from uh, Orlando because I had met him. Uh, I had worked in the summers in, as a vet assistant in Orlando, and he was like a kennel boy in the in the veterinary clinic that I had worked at. So one summer I came back from Boston Museum School to just have you know a couple of months off, and the veterinarian asked me if I would be the receptionist for them because the receptionist had gotten ill and had a surgery and she wouldn't be back for a month or so to convalesce so i came and that's where i met robin and uh so when i met robin amos he took me to his house and he had like an entire two rooms full of records so i realized i'd met my match this guy had more music than i'd ever seen in my life and then he had an eml synthesizer and i had helped build a uh airy synthesizer you know that 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 year you know in my electronic music class you know i'd been doing a lot of tape stuff you know, and in that, you know, in that class, you know, we were being exposed to, to, um, Sinakis and, uh, Harry Parch and, um, uh, what about some of the, some of the other stuff we were doing, just a lot of crazy, uh, electronic stuff. And there's a lot of video artists at my school that were, that were part of the William Wegman stuff who did the Weimar Wine Runner Dogs, the, the video artist. So there were video artists, and I think in the Reynolds, the band that Pseudo Carroll ended up forming with, um, those two, both both of them were video artists. There were so we, we it was kind of the new media clash. But I was a painting student. I was a painter. Yes. And um, you know, so my philosophy was you can't unplug a Rembrandt. You know. So yes, you know, that's nice. Sort of so this was so you'd philosophy. been at art school for most of that kind of mid mid seventies. Yeah, yeah. I went to art school for nine years, probably. I went to to uh, the School and Museum of Fine Arts, the Boston Museum School for another two or three years. And I'd been at uh, Ringling for four years. So, My God, yeah. that's impressive. It's a you lot must... of school. Yeah, well, Vietnam was going on, so I needed a student deferment, you know. So that was that was accredited. I didn't particularly um, want to be in school that much. It was just, you know, it was that or Vietnam. Yeah, <laughs> so... that, was, that, was, that was a no-brainer, really. Because they still had the draft, you know, for a long time. Yeah. Did your dad ever say, mm, come on, boy? Oh, mm. no. My dad, he, my dad was really cool. Now, my dad was a staunch Eisenhower Republican, but he hated the whole Vietnam War. And he had friends that worked at the Pentagon still. So he told me, whatever you do, if you ever, you know, we, we they had a lottery system for numbers. And my my number was high enough and my brother's number was high enough. We never got called, you know, to the, you know, to, to take the physicals and go to the draft and all that. So he said, if we ever did, you know, um, they would um, um, 
you know, he would personally drive me to Canada, basically. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, oh, yeah, well, he was again, yeah, which is pretty amazing because my father was very conservative, but he just, no, no. And he said, that was fodder. That was just not, not, not a good, good deal. He goes. Not a good wall. Not a good wall. So then, I mean, did, did you, did, was the punk scene, I mean, you mentioned the Ramones. Did you, were people like the Clash, the Buzzcocks, the, the you know, the Pistols? Did they? Well, the Clash be... for us were the singles. Obviously the Buzzcocks. Yeah. The, like, and when you, when we discuss me and my influence in the band, um, like Robin Amos was an audiophile. So he would buy everything. You know, and he had the Stranglers, which I hated. I, there's a famous story of me when the Stranglers played live. I don't, I'm still kind of proud of this because I didn't hurt anyone. But I hit the uh, singer. Is it Glenn Cornish, whatever the guy's name was? I hit oh. him in the head with it. I hit him in the head with an ashtray. <laughs> wow. He never found out who did it. They stopped the concert to see, see who did it. But it was me. <laughs> I was very drunk, but I hated the Stranglers. And even though there's some good music, we just lost a, a couple of them, right? Just the other day. But um, I know a lot of people really respected and love them, and there and, and understand there was some good musicianship in them. But I hated them. I hated their songs. I hated I hated the lead lead singer. Um, yeah, you did. Um, you did. So, I, I, so, so yeah. But um, so so I'm I'm semi proud of that. I'm certainly uh, wouldn't like somebody to hit me in the head. I've been hit in the head by a pitcher, a glass pitcher of beer before, and I had to go to the hospital. So I've been on the other end of that. But anyway, um. Uh, yeah, we listened to all that stuff. I loved uh, the Clash singles. You know, I, I don't know if I was a big fan of the Clash albums, but I, I loved the singles. Yes. And I loved the the 101er stuff, too. It was fun. I, you know, I definitely appreciated them. Um, but we were in the Throbbing Gristle at the same time. So, you know, it's like, you know, who were just totally, you know, hated you, the Clash. And all did you things. ever get, did you ever sort of come across a band called Rima, Rima who, who when he bought out one... 12 inch at that point in 79 did we it's a very obscure little band but they've, they've no become, no but recently there's been a film made and and there's been a lot of interest in this one band um, oh that's cool yes it's very interesting so yes the post-punk world of psychic tv we loved him so yeah um, and i i went to a mission of burma and they were playing at uh danceteria and Mission of Burma was on the on the bill with them, and they were opening for Mission of Tear. And this is a great story. And so Martin, the the tape loop guy for Mission of Burma, was because um, I was very close friends with with Roger Miller and and uh, the rest of the band I was acquainted with, but I knew Roger and I were really close friends, and we had done some projects together that never saw the light of day as far as being uh, you know released. But anyway, uh, I went backstage i was working in new york at a big auction house and i showed up dressed in a suit because i came from work and i went over and uh went in and i, I could get in the the two doormen knew me and, and jimmy forat uh um uh, was a good friend so i you know i, I always could get in any any night so i went in and backstage and they were like uh, sort of horrified because of the audience had been chased away by by genesis in the, in the van you know and uh, so there was hardly any audience there but uh, i remember martin swope was um going like you know he was reading a book you know in in the dressing room and i was just laughing because they, they were playing and everything of course the joke is i went back out to watch the full show i love psychic tv you know but the rest of them were like oh oh god who the hell is this group like you know because they were doing like a surgical penis clinic thing i think they were doing the, their you know 
destroying a penis. It was a sex change thing or something they were showing, which I love. They were showing all this, this stuff. Because the other person I haven't mentioned, yes. you know, who was part of my high school formative years <laughs> is um, Wildman Fisher. Um, I love the bizarro stuff, you know, that he he did. Like, um, I don't know how familiar you are with his records, but they were, you know, the albums. But, you know, Frank Zappa sort of, you know, exploited this paranoid schizophrenic character. But he was also incredibly brilliant, uh, this guy. And he did um, uh, some of the most amazing stuff on the first uh, uh, record. I did a couple albums with him, but I loved uh, um, Jennifer Jones. Uh, the Taster, um, don- Monkeys versus Donkeys, or Donkeys versus Monkeys, which was his title. I mean, I loved the whole thing. He did most of it a cappella, and then some of it was done in the studio. And it was just insane. It was it really was. The guy was insane, but it was amazing. Yes. And it was like for, ferocious. You know, it's a little bit like um, Daniel Johnston, you know, you know, kind of, you know, the same vibe, you know, a guy who's really should be in a padded sale you know, yes. and dangerous, you know, but, but they're enjoying his genius. You know, it's a funeral home, funeral home. You know, that was so crazy. But that, uh, the whole Wildman Fisher thing is what I developed for my sort of voice for what I, how I sang, how I performed. It was that kind of crazy craziness, not quite literally, but definitely inspired. And it went back to the Jonathan Richmond thing of seeing him do something, you know, with folded chairs in a basement where he's crawling around uh, disturbing everyone. That was the, be- the impetus of why I wanted to, you know, do it more like performance, you know, than it was even doing music. You know, the rest of the band, I don't know if was in on the same wavelength I was, but that's what I did. And I, I, I took them into dangerous areas because of it. You know, we had a lot of problems sometimes. <laughs> Yes, we, just just yeah. just, just slightly going back because I missed the the name of that band. You said Bizarro, did you? With this, no, uh, it was on Bizarro Records. Uh, it was Frank Zappa's label. It was right. called Bizarro, and he did and he released uh, uh, Wildman Fisher, and it was F I S C H E R, right? And like it's and he did a like a bunch of stuff, but some of it was a cappella. He just do it. He was a street guy, and he he was he was you know all over L A and all over the Sunset Strip at the time. And so Zappa ran into him and decided to, to record it. You know, a lot of, some of the stuff was done outside, you know, and stuff. Yes. And it was amazing. I just loved the whole concept because people laughed at it. But um, for me, and it's like, you know, and, and, and the guy from the Fugs, Ed Sanders, Beer Cans on the Moon, that was another record that really influenced me. I love the whole impromptu thing, the spontaneity, the brilliance of the lyrics were fantastic. Uh, my favorite lyricist of all time is probably Iggy Pop. Um, you know, I'm bored. I'm chairman of the board. Um, yes. I mean, come on. You know, it's classic. You know, it's a, <laughs> so it yes. Yeah, so good. I felt that that way about uh, about uh, uh, Fisher. You know, Larry Larry Fisher. He was amazing, and um, uh, just the whole persona of it. And it's just so we did stuff like that. I did acapella things sometimes before we went into musical stuff. I would do that stuff. We did both sides now at a communist. It was like the social work, so socialist workers party, whatever. Uh, they called the police on us. The communists called the police on us <laughs> because we freaked them out so bad. We did so both were... sides now for the entire show. It was like a, it was like sort of like a Faust, you know, thing or something without being you know, this, the brilliance of them, you know, or stuff. And can was another group, you know, 
I, I, you know, you mentioned we listened to all that stuff. Robin loved Can and 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 uh, ended up performing um, um, with the, his uh, when he was with uh, what was the stupid band that Robin was with after the girls. I can't remember, but they they were doing stuff with Malcolm Mooney. Um, but anyway, yeah, all that stuff, you know. But we used to do our own version of it. You know, we used to have Bozo the Clown records in between songs because we had uh, Robin had to do the the uh, the uh, patch changes for the synthesizer and so there's only only way we do it was just to do something so sound wise we used to put bozo the clown records through the pa system during the times when robin was doing patch changes and then we'd go into the next song and stuff but that would just and then we had uh we did a lot of tape stuff with uh echo plexes so a little hawkwind thrown into our shows you know well, yes. sort of, sort of, just just to disorient you so I always thought of it because Mark Dagley used to always say we were a psychedelic band, but you know, Mark Dagley's influences were barbecue Bob, you know, which is a Georgia blues guy that used to play. Uh, he used to work at a barbecue and he used to, uh, it was a cook in a barbecue and he used to play in his, you know, in his um, uh, barbecue outfit. And we actually did a show at the modern theater opening for um because that was our rehearsal space we rehearsed it we we were on in a dance studio with a giant wall mirror we'd perform to see what we look like you know which was just so cool at this old dilapidated theater so eventually they renovated it and we were still there and uh so we got a gig opening for pair ubu and um um while we're at and we did all kinds of crazy things with that show but um we we basically I'm getting on a tangent here, but we, we basically um, came out, you know, dressed up, you know, like Barbecue Bob. All of us were wearing the barbecue outfits with the hats, chefs hats, the whole, the whole look, you know, with aprons. And I think we got the aprons because um, George Condo and I worked at a silk screen factory that did all kinds of of stuff, you know, like shirts and bags and clothing and stuff. So we had some leftover runoffs that were mistakes of uh, the the. Um, uh, aprons so we were wearing we got we got aprons for everybody but um God, that's amazing yeah, so, so because, when you... mark because mark dagley's influences were all blues you know obscure really obscure blues like barbecue bob and um uh, where was barbecue i can't remember barbecue's actual name but he was a guy from georgia in the turn of the century incredible guitar player too and mark was you know mark was a really good guitar player but you know most of the audience never knew that they because we just do noise mark would play with boxes he wouldn't really play and the same thing with george condo he was an incredibly um talented musician but he played viola and classical guitar so we put it put a bass you know, guitar into his hands but on jeffrey i hear you if you listen to the to the bass lines in that it's out there it's great it's really great you know, it's definitely got some John Inwhistle in it. It's definitely, definitely not a, a normal baseline. No. Can you remember, so, yeah. where did you record the, was that the first time in the studio when you did Jeffrey, I Hear You? Yeah, the first and only time we were in a real studio. And that was um, in Painesville, Ohio at SUMA. David Thomas paid for that. Uh, he had he had, had his chrysalis money and he was doing Hey Arpin, you know, his label. And he had mainly, it's all, you know, Ohio bands and stuff, but he basically decided to, uh, to take, you know, we took a train, uh, a really long train out to uh, Ohio and back and, uh, and recorded. And it was beautiful. It was out in the middle of winter. They were having a snowstorm. We had like an ice storm back home when we got home on the train. But um, yeah, so we spent a few, few days recording 
Um, my only regret is we didn't choose something besides Elephant Man. Uh, Elephant Man was just too experimental. I wish we would have done one of our little zippy little numbers, you know. And I think David had suggested we do that. And we just didn't listen to him. So I wish we would have recorded uh, uh, that song called Methodist Church. We had a song called Radiation and a song called Doggy Auto, which David loved. Actually, Mayo Thompson was living with David at the time. He loved it because I would ha I would chat with David on the phone for hours. And then Mayo Thompson was with him for a while. And David was like doing taxes or something when he was in Cleveland for a while. And uh, so he was working for H&R Block or something. And uh, so Mayo would get on the phone and with me and I got to know him. And of course, I was a Red Crayola fan. I loved uh, Hurricane Fighter Blues and all that. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, but we would talk about um, everything but music usually. So, you know. so anyway, but that's how I got to know David really, really well. It's just, you know, we talk on the phone so much. But they their first tour they played. Um, their first, they did a show with uh, Suicide Commandos, but they got booked into um, um, a they got booked into a country and western bar called Club Circe in Worcester, Mass. And so it was just like out of a David Lynch movie. It had no reason to be, and the audience was not into them. And we were only the, sort of only a few handful of people that knew who they were and came to see them. And I know when I came to see them, I was wearing a, a, a navy blue snorkel coat with fur, and David had the same snorkel coat. Of course, underneath it, David was wearing a shark skin suit or something. And that's the first time I ever met him. And yes. we just sort of locked on each other, like, who's this guy? Who's this guy? And we got to see a, a, an amazing show, something they would have done at, at a Cleveland club like Pirates Cove or something. And we got to see this amazing show. And uh, so that's the first time I saw them. When I saw them live, we just loved them. And uh, that was the original band, except for, you know, obviously, um, um, What's-His-Face wasn't with them. I can't, I can't remember his name today. The original yeah. guitar player that killed himself or died of, you know, of excess along oh, with that, the... That wasn't Mayo, was it? No, no, not Mayo. Um, uh, I'm talking about early, early on. Um, the original good I, i'm i would people are, you know would be killing me now and i can't remember his name there's a whole group that um peter is his first name <sighs> but he was originally in you know peter what's peter's last name mm -hmm. anyway there's a whole contingent you know contingent of uh of his fan base and i can't remember his name oh <sighs> so this is this ray red crayola you're talking about no, no, nothing to do with them. I'm talking about Cleveland music. Right. That's Texas. I'm talking yes. about um 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 David. Can't remember his stupid name. Oh, so close. Who was the critic that we were talking about almost famous a minute ago? Who was oh, the rock critic? Um Cameron that, uh, Cameron somebody. Yeah, well, no, no, no. That was the director. Yeah, I'm talking about the actual um Oh, the critic. Yes, I know the guy. What was it that, that Philip Seymour Hoffman um, played? Anyway, um, that guy. Oh, God. I've got his book somewhere, actually. Shit. Yeah, Peter Peter Loeffner. Peter Loeffner. He's huge in underground you know, stuff. He became friends with uh, those. Those two were to Lester Bangs. And Lester, Lester Bangs and Peter Loeffner got together and, you know, 
both of them killed each other basically by just excess. But uh, Peter Lochner, you know, he had Peter Lochner had brought a gun to rehearsal or something. So that was the end of his his uh, being in Paruvu. That that was the story that was told to me by a few of the members. Yes. And because uh, I didn't know the whole Cleveland thing, it's kind of funny. I was an honorary cleveland guy because i got to know so many people and also one of my very dearest friends uh who i miss every day is ralph carney who was he was from tin huey and and from akron ohio and uh you know ralph we lost ralph he fell down a flight of stairs in portland oregon a few years ago and uh one of the just great geniuses because a lot of the music that i did was with him or and kramer and uh david thomas i i did a i did a tour called the with the wooden birds with with ralph playing with us because the only times i played after the girls professionally really you know, playing his drums was like david thomas got me to play two different tours uh with a with us under the the nomaker uh, wooden birds but i also played with david without playing drums i played with he and tony and my friend garo garo yellen who was a cellist we used to play as um oh god what we used to, we used to go uh the accordion club, the accordion weasels. <laughs> yeah, the accordion weasels. And we, we played, um, we opened it in down in Washington, D.C. for um, James Blood Ulmer, which was amazing. We did this amazing show and we did two sets and uh, it was wild. And uh, so and that was all acoustic stuff we were doing. Um, Tony was doing upright bass. And uh, then, then I then then my last tour of playing drums with 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 Alan Ravenstein, Tony, my friend George Cartwright from Curlew, really incredible New York experimental musician, um, and then David, and then and then of course I was playing drums, and um, that was I don't know how many years ago? That was during the uh, um, um, I think that was I think it was during the. Uh, the disaster, you know, for the, uh, what was the stupid, I can't remember names today. This is when you get to be almost 72. It was during the, um, um, nuclear, uh, disaster, you know, oh, in, Chernobyl. In Russia. Chernobyl, 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 CCC, David. Anyway, it was during that. <laughs> so we spent the whole time because we, we played in Germany near, near the end of that. We were being hosed down a lot by uh, guys with, hazmat suits and stuff during that tour because we played yugoslavia and we played hungary and all these great gigs but this is the last of of uh, alan ravenstein ever playing uh as, you know with uh david and tony right. so that was wonderful we didn't know that at the time but that was just a kind of a wonderful experience and my friend jordan george cartwright who's you know mainly a jazz uh, uh player so it was fun to have him there i had gotten him I hoodwinked him into playing this tour. So, um, so yeah, I'm going all over the place, but I'm just saying that was after the girls dissolved. And yes. the girls basically basically broke up because um, George Kondo and Mark Daly wanted to move to New York. So, you know, that's, that's really, really what happened. And I didn't want to move. I had, I had fallen in love. I had a girlfriend. And uh, so I waited a few years until that relationship dissolved. And so I actually, I was, I was I moved to New York, even though that relationship was still going on. Right. But, um, so, um, so yeah, so I think I've thrown in every tidbit I can think of, of influences and stuff and what I was doing, but I also did a lot of solo stuff. I worked in my friend, Roger Miller from uh, mission of Burma brought over a army field organ and he loaned that to me for a year or so. And I used 
played a lot of stuff on that and I, I figured out a lot of stuff that got me into thinking about accordions and stuff yeah so I, I sort of that sort of that's how I got into doing that because I was doing I was doing a uh, Mennonite farmer thing I dressed up like a Mennonite farmer far, farmer I had sent um, uh, to Shipshawana, Indiana to get an authentic it was like a a, a um, country store and they had an entire Mennonite outfit you know you could get and so I got the entire outfit and I worked at a big auction house. And one day while I was at, you know, out, you know, Long Island or somewhere, when I came back, this box was there, <laughs> all this stuff. And, and everyone was like curious of what in the hell's going on. Um, and so I opened up this thing and it had a hat. It had the overalls, the, you know, the, the boots, everything. So I went out and did audition nights in New York. Uh, I actually met Gilbert Godfrey when he was still in high school. And we would get in line to do these things. He did comedy clubs, but I would do Folk City. And Lynn Samuels, who was a big radio personality at the time, loved me. And so she tried to work me in. But you'd be at like, wait, wait till three in the morning and then get bumped because somebody well-known like Suzanne Vega or somebody would show up and they'd bump <laughs> you off the thing. But um, I did a, a, a accordion thing. I did a solo thing. And I usually would play about 15 minutes. And I sent lots of those tapes to uh, David Thomas and his wife. And somehow when I ended up doing um, years later, David uh, was invited by the Council of the Arts to do Miraman, the first thing at, at South Bank Center at Queen Elizabeth. And I think so at that time, I ended up uh, going to my I flew over as one of the members. I had Jackie Levin. Uh, 11 they had um chris cutler was playing drums um peter hamill was actually involved was playing um and when i met all those guys one of the funniest things was this that linda thompson i've never met in my life who i'm, I'm, I'm a huge fan of she and her ex-husbands i you know she goes over to me and hugs me and she goes i have your tapes i have your tapes and she had all these tapes of my mennonite farmer stuff <laughs> which was fantastic Yes. But sadly, none of this stuff is, you know, has never seen seen the light of day or ever been recorded. The only really recording we had besides a posthumous rehearsal tape called Reunion was um, the singles that David Thomas did, which were 33 and a third, by the way, that the sound quality is fantastic on those things. Yes. So this is the this is the live album that came out live at. Uh... Yeah, and it's not really. It was just a, we went to, to um, we had some friends. Uh, Robbie Davis, who had been in, a, he was in a band called the Malls, M O L L S, and he basically um, asked us if we would just come over and play a set, you know, at his place. So, so we did, and it was like um, four track probably, and and so we we did a set, just like why we we do a show, we just did a set there, and the, and when we recorded it, yeah, and then we had some recordings that came from the the Boston, the Rat Scaler, which we were put out. Uh, which were live shows. And then there was another show, another album that came out that was from just sort of tapes, you know, kind of, you know, reel to reel stuff of rehearsals that Mark and I, us really basically putting together songs together when we were two piece. And um, that came out on, um, uh, what's the stupid label? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't remember it. <laughs> I can't remember the label. But Farmers got recorded too on the same label, and I can't remember the stupid label. Oh. But anyway, 
Yes. Roger Miller had a tape of us playing at a church, I think, or something. So he recorded a set. So that that got done. And I I also put on a couple of recordings on it that he wanted some little extra stuff for it. What's the stupid name of the I can't remember the stupid thing. Um after I get off, you know, I'll send you on in on Messenger, I'll send you the names of the the albums and the labels. Oh, that would be amazing. That so I forget all this stuff. Well, God, you've done really well so far. But in the 80s, you were very prolific in the 80s. Then do you, I mean, then the 90s, do you still sort of, are you still working in the arts, music, painting? Or um, you... Not really, but I would occasionally, I, I, I was doing uh, the Carney Hill Kramer stuff. And um, so the way we did those recordings is really bizarre. Like Ralph Carney would go to, New York to visit Mark and Mark had various, he started out as, with noise, New York, which was, you know, near Macy's, you know, on 32nd street. Is that it? I can't remember anymore. And, um, and then he moved down to Soho and then he bought uh, a um, really cool studio across the bridge in New Jersey called noise, New Jersey. And uh, so wh wherever those locations were like the first one we did, um, when Shimmy Disc first formed his label, Ralph was going to doing what was supposed to be a solo record. And Ralph asked me to come and just check it out. So when I came to check it out, they were kind of, you know, at a loss for words. They just kind of didn't know where they wanted to go. And so I said, well, I've got some lyrics for that and I can play some drums on that. You know, so somehow I threw myself into it, you know. And so by the end of the uh, of the of the session, they said, you want to do this all together, the three of us? And I said, yeah, OK. So which because I didn't really know Mark Kramer then. So anyway, so that was fantastic. And I was thrilled that Mark liked what I was doing. So and because uh, Ralph and I had thought about doing a band and stuff, but didn't really do it. So anyway, at that time, what I'm getting at is, yeah, so Ralph and I put together a band and we never had a name. We just would come up with ridiculous stuff ralph would come up with names i came up with midget planets because we played with greg cohen of tom waits we played with um uh, uh, mark rebo occasionally when he wasn't doing the uh, lounge lizards gigs and stuff and then we had um ralph and then a guy named randolph hudson the third who ended up being the bong water guitar player and then david lick from bong water and Ch chockabilly with eugene chadbourne so a lot of really great players and uh, and then ralph and then and we Ralph would always invite somebody really special, you know, sometimes you know, a trombonist, just you know, always somebody really cool. And then, then like I said, Mark Rebo would occasionally show up. A lot of times Mark was intimidated by Randy Hudson, which is pretty funny that Mark Rebo, an incredibly brilliant guitar player, would be intimidated, but he was. So he would play horns and everything but guitar. And then he, uh, we had uh, a couple baritone guitars that they, that he and and then Ralph would play baritone guitar too. And then I didn't do anything but sing. I was the lead singer. I was just like the the, the leader and the singer. So Ralph and I put that together, and we played, you know, CBGBs. We played some New York clubs. We played uh, in Hoboken at Maxwell's a few times. Then we went down in Boston and played the Middle East a couple of times. We played. Uh, I'm trying to think some of the stuff. Then Randy and I played like a. a a movie theater we did a thing where we combined uh, this woman joyce linehan booked us into the harvard square theater and we had the uh, the uh robert wise uh we had a, a print of that and we did the haunting of hill house and then we did the haunting of hilled house <laughs> and then had uh randy and i play a solo show 
afterwards. They, this was a concert series where they had bands pick a favorite movie, and then after the movie would be shown, the bands would play. And they had a lot of really cool bands that did, did, did that. And then, yes. um, yeah, so yeah, so I did a lot of stuff. And then eventually, um, I think we quit playing. My father had a brain injury stroke, and that's how I wound up back in Florida. So, you know, during that period. So we were playing, our last show was at Hotel Utah. And I was playing with, 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 with Ralph and I were playing now in a group called, um, this is when we were in San Francisco. So we, Ralph moved out to San Francisco than I did. So then Ralph and I started um, um, getting some really cool gigs. And so we decided to come up with a name for the band. And we worked with a guy named Joshua Brody, who worked sometimes with the residents. He was a keyboard player. Um, so we started a band with a drummer and I had a couple different drummers and Ralph and I decided to call the band Ralph because everyone knew Ralph in the Bay area. He's very famous there. Yes. So we started doing that. So we, 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 we did that. And, um, so that was the last sort of formal stuff I was doing until I moved back to Florida because my father had a stroke and then I couldn't get back. I ended up giving up my apartment and selling my car and all this crap and staying in, in Orlando. So after that, Ralph and I were long distance, but, um, I had an opportunity to, um, uh, do South bank. I think David got the opportunity to do the, the Merriman thing. So right. he thought of me. And so he asked if I could do it and I hadn't performed in years. So yeah, I went and did that. And then I did that. And then a, a couple of years later, we did another version of it where we, did we we went we played art centers all over england and then we went and played uh the last show was in in um i said we played glass in glasgow i think was the last oh, show God. Oh, yeah. say the... we played like one show in scotland then we finished up in in london and it was for, for the very 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 last show like and then it was you know and that was with alan alan robinson was i no no excuse me that was the yeah that was after the fact so yeah that was with with the Merriman, you know, stuff, Bob Holman, um, David, um, two Pell boys, Chris Cutler. I think the second tour, when we toured all over, uh, Peter Hamill wasn't able to do it. So we were, um, I don't know. I think we just did, we just didn't, didn't have a, an extra guitar player. And then, um, I can't, I can't remember. And of course, Linda and, and Jackie, Jackie 11 was still doing it. So yeah, it's a lot of fun. We'd gotten to know each other really well. So it was a lot of fun. Oh and uh, a lot of drinking went on. <laughs> yeah, so, but we had a lot of fun. We played like all over the place. And um, so I memorized the entire libretto because I wrote some of the libretto, but just a little bit. And I so I memorized the whole thing. So David referred to me sort of as a production guy, you know, because I knew exactly where we were during the show. Because I had just decided to that's when my brain actually functioned and um so yeah so i was in great shape so yeah so i my father ended up passing away and so i think after he passed away ralph and chris butler um from uh tin huey and then of course chris was was the waitresses you know he was the most famous from that uh they decided to do a boys and back boys is back in town thing with ralph and chris and they got together with friends like uh uh, um, the drummer for um, Sonic Youth. Um, oh yes, Shelley, Steve, Steve Shelley, Steve, yes, um, that's the one. Smokey Hormel from Beck. We had some really cool pay- people playing with us. Uh, Mark Rebo again, uh, and then you know, and then I was a lead singer for a few songs. 
And we did that in at a place called Tonic, maybe in New York. That no, no, it's no longer. And then we played um, in Hoboken for the next night, and um, so that that was a lot of fun. That's the, unfortunately the last time I ever played with with Ralph and Mark and all those guys. So, yes. um, but it was really, really great. I was really uh, generous and grateful for Chris to allow me to come and do that. And, and I had so much fun sort of reuniting with Mark Rebo. And we played a couple of songs that I'd written. One song was called um, My First TV, which was one of my favorite songs, but none of this stuff has ever been recorded. So, um, so everybody was like, wow, where did that come from? And I said, well, it's, it's been like 10 years since we last met, you know, I wrote this thing about 10, 10 years ago, but anyway, um, so that was it. And I think um, Ralph and I had made plans to do stuff. And then unfortunately he passed away. And so, you know, it's just really crazy. Yes. So yeah, that's the last of doing anything musical. And oh, then, like sure. I said, I, you know, so then I, then I got involved with long-term healthcare doing hospice. So that's what I do now. <laughs> so. Wow. God, there's another guy who who does a lot to do with, um, is it Maxis, Kansas City? He seems to sort of, that was his kind of become his day job looking after kind of, you know, certain in the nursing mm-hmm. profession. So, um, mm-hmm. Well, I remember Kevin Coyne was an orderly or something. And the National Health is a little bit different, but I think he was something like a CNA. Yes. Um, you know, was another person I love. I mean, just mission to anybody, you know, anybody on version records too, especially, you know, also Lowell Coxhill, you know, just mention anyone and also, yes, yes, I like them. I bought <laughs> all those albums or Robin did, you know, either one of us bought all those records. Yeah. You know, we're informed by all that. I know. But I don't did know you... how much of it was influenced, but, you know, go, go ahead. I was going to say, did you come across uh, Kramer when he was in Bongwater with Anne? Was that was that one of those combos that you? Or um, was was that before I you? I met him through Ralph because you know through when 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 he had started Shimmy Disc and had the original Noise New York studio. Right. He um, um, he basically uh, uh, they invited me to come and check it out and really, you know, like I said, I had no intention of once again as usual. My life is about not I you know not intending to do anything. And I, yes. you know, and they had me come on board for the whole project. It's supposed to be Ralph's uh, album. Album, so we ended up doing a. And then we, as a as a laugh, we decided to call it Carney Hill Kramer. You know, for us, we still snatching young. <laughs> that is a nice idea. Did you, really, really with, did you ever work with people like John Zorn, or did you ever come across? No, John Zorn. I did. I knew a little bit. I knew a little bit, and I once had come up with an idea that he that he liked. Um, uh, which was, you know, I don't really know. It came, I think it was referred back to him through somebody else, but I suggested um, doing the the song uh, uh, Little Nash Rambler by the Playmates. And he loved that song. That's the beep, beep song here in America in the 50s. It was huge. And um, so, um, you know, I grew up with that song. And I had slowed that song down for cello and accordion. And that was Monster Walks Through in a Lake melody it was basically da 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 that's beep beep and that's what monster walks through in a lake melody is that david does it's beep beep with a cellist and an accordion i slowed it down because i learned to play it on accordion but anyway um yeah um john zorn was gonna gonna maybe cover that with his orchestra thing but i don't i don't know if he ever did but he he yeah i just got it got back to me that he said oh that was brilliant you know kind of thing 
Um, but yeah, but no, I didn't. We either Ralph and I didn't really play with those guys. Um, we weren't part of that scene. Even George Cartwright, my friend, my dear friend George, we would never be part of Curlew with Tom Core, the late great Tom Core, or Fred Frith or any of those guys. We'd never, you know, be near. Even though I knew them, you know, I knew Tom well, and, and I knew Fred Frith a little bit. Um, no, we weren't part of that. They're, they're pretty much snobs about their music, and they're brilliant. You know, it's, that's fine. It was. Um, not what we were doing, you know. I would, I would be considered a clown to those guys, you know. So, but I knew them, you know. Peter yes. Blakebog, you know, those guys, really nice people. And you know, I think I didn't really know him that well either. But you know, it's just like, yeah, of course, of course, I knew those folks, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, uh, but it wasn't, I wasn't part of it. It's just like, like I said, we, ne I never fit in. I didn't fit into the Boston scene at all. You know, uh, I was shocked to find out that I did a solo show with with um, with my farmer thing and and uh, Willie local Alexander from Boston showed up and he loved it. And we had a couple of drinks together. And I said, I thought, because, you know, years ago when Carmen Wiseman, you know, I, who was our first, you know, third member of the girls that lasted one gig at a strip club. Uh, I said, I thought you guys hated us. And he goes, no, we love you. We love the girls. So I was shocked. We just had this uh, this uh, complex. We just felt like everyone hated us. I mean, how often do you, we played a, we play a, a gig in Boston and people would come up to us and say, we hate you or you're getting better. <laughs> Amazing. It's you're getting better. That was my favorite. So the of... animosity we had, you know, it's like I said, and that's why the band broke up. The band just hated being in Boston. <laughs> so two of them left. They just said, that's it. But Robin and I had girlfriends. And so we, we stayed, you know. I was wondering if you um, if you sort of feel a little bit like you, you know, archiving your work to get, you know, to get it all, you know, because you've got a phenomenal. I body. wish we did. I do have I do have material to be archived. <laughs> I just haven't done it i should like i said i have some so i have a lot of songs that people haven't heard at least lyric wise you know that i think are really good it's just i haven't like i said and now you know as you get older it just you know when am i ever going to do that you know so i just hate even even uh tantalizing myself that i might do that but yeah i've loved to, i love the idea of doing that yes. um it's really a shame i mean we we had an opportunity the girls were was offered a recording contract it ended up that we sort of sent that recording track uh, um, contract to Human Search Response, who 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 used it. Uh, the the girls basically broke up in Salem, Massachusetts, at a meeting to be signed to a record label. <laughs> you know, so, That's a classic, so really classic rock story, isn't it? Really? Yeah, it was just classic. Well, the band just because the two 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 of the members, George Condo. And uh, Mark just wanted out of Boston because, I mean, literally after the shows, people would come up to them and tell them how much they despised the music and hated them. They didn't do that to me. I was a lot bigger than, they, than those guys. Nobody came up to my face and told me that shit because I would have hurt them. <laughs> 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 but there's, a lot of people, there's people who reference the girls, aren't they? There's people who say that this is, you know, one of the great records, you know. That I don't know. It's so crazy. But David, where were those people when we were around? You know, we didn't yeah. play out a lot, so it's not really their fault. You know, we didn't. We like I said, I think we harbored, you know, our own, uh, you know, animosity. We just we we wanted that. I think as part of our act, you know, like everyone yes. hates us. I think. 
then we don't care kind of thing. Have, but you, yeah, met anybody, have you met anybody who's quite fame or got went on to sort of much more commercial success and um, say, God, you know, I saw you and it was because of you. A, so, a lot of people. Yeah. I, yeah. And I think, like I said, I know the mission of Burma guys loved us, you know, and, and, uh, and they were just starting out when I left New York, I mean, left Boston, but yeah, I, I had, I had befriended, uh, Roger Miller because Roger Miller came his first gig he attended when he moved from, um, from, cause he's sort of from Ann Arbor, but he also had been out to the, um, he'd been in, in California to, he went to Cal arts and all that. So he came to a show we were doing called it was a eight millimeter film that the that Larry Bangor from Human Social Response had made called The End of the World, which I was I played a dog in it. And uh, it was amazing. And we did this this big, huge presentation. And I played, we all played played with sheets on, and I had a bass drum and I played a, a, on a on a baby grand piano. They had all these different musicians playing. And it was just this cacophony thing. You know, it was almost almost like Portsmouth Symphonia, you know. And uh and that's the first thing that Roger Miller walked in on in the dark, all these guys with, you know, these ghosts and then this ridiculous film up there. So he was like, wow, you know, I can't believe this is Boston. <laughs> you know, kind of yes. So but but it was wild, you know. But that was just a small, you know, contingent. Like the main rock scene was pretty boring, you know, in Boston. So um, like I said, there wasn't, you know, Jonathan Richmond wasn't, you know, uh, you know, you know, on all fours doing I'm a little dinosaur all over Boston. He pretty much <laughs> Jonathan was touring every everywhere but Boston. You know? <laughs> so, yes. So it's I mean, kind of funny. If you could have whispered some to your like 16 year old self starting out, just, you know, a bit of advice or sort of nudged in a different direction or some extra sort of bullet points that could have been useful. Is there anything that you would have said to that person, even if they ignored it? I just wondered what your probably listen to listen to more um, input from other people, because I think, like I said, the girls one and only real great recording. I think we could have had another side to Jeffrey that would have been amazing. There is two or three songs that should have been picked. And that's mainly my fault, but also the band was afraid to really challenge me, you know? And I think even David didn't want to, you know, influence us. You know, he wanted to be a good producer, but yeah, Yeah. I wish, I wish I would have known because we had some wonderful music and any of the three songs, you know, that I'm thinking of would have been amazing. And I, I think it might have even been even more amazing. We might have, who knows, we may have had something open a, a door or two if we'd done that. Yes. You know, but... it's just really crazy. But, you know, it was supposed to happen. The, the, the story behind uh, Elephant Man was that Bernard Pomerantz, which wrote, who, who wrote the play, it's based on Ashley Monahue's book, The Study of Human Dignity, which I'd read, you know, years before. And so I wanted to do a thing about the Elephant Man. But I can never figure out whether it's supposed to be silly or serious or what, you know. And so it has a lot of experimental stuff in it, too. And it just never got figured out, you know. And I wanted to get it out as quickly as possible. But, of course, I had heard that Bernard Pemerantz was getting ready to put into production. It was a pre-production in New York, you know, The Elephant Man, you know, which became a huge, huge hit, you know. And we made so much fun of that too, because it's it's pretty. I saw I saw David Bowie in it, and I thought it was, was horrible. Gonna, even, oh, even though the, the the movie was, you know, with John Hurt was good, but I just, <laughs> you know, I like I said, I knew the story, and it just 
it was really schmaltzy to me. I used to say on stage sometimes when, before we played the song, I go, sometimes I think my head is so big because it's full of head. <laughs> yeah. And the people would not get the joke, but I would just, you know. And so, yeah, we played Elephant Man out live a lot. It was pretty fun. It would go into the dirges and stuff. So if anybody was looking, had- I was going to say with the with the girls, you've got Jeffrey, I hear you. What other track would you recommend? Um, Methodist Church was a fun rock song. Just Got Back is another one really quick. And then, then oh gosh, and then um, oh, there's a bunch of stuff. Um, unfortunately, there's stuff that we, we never, we have a song called Radiation that never got recorded. Um. Oh, da, 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 da. I'm trying to think, but th- those are sort of the 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 ones. If you never heard us before, um, Methodist Church and just got back, right? Um, and and we had some other stuff too. I and, and you know the stuff that's on the reunion thing, which is basically just the set. It's what we used to play out in the set. Um, yes. I was just kind of looking at that live album. I just thought, mm, oh, yeah, I'm trying to trying to remember that. But but yeah, you know, like I said, we it's a shame that we didn't, you know, get into a proper recording studio to do do some of that stuff. Yes, because oh. even Elephant Man, we could have figured out something had we not put it on a single. We could have figured out something, and of course, it it was a 33 and a third single, so the sound quality is fantastic. Yes, that's amazing. Yes, well, look. This has been fantastic. Thank you. I can't believe we managed to line this up so well. And just so I don't bungle your name, even though it's very similar, how do you just to how do you pronounce your name? To spell it, it's just David, and I spell it just like you know. It, it sounds like David. I pronounce it like David, and it's spelled D A V E D. And yes. literally, when I was in high school, I started using that spelling because of the soft machine and David Allen and Gong and all right. that. But Gong was later. But because of David Allen, of course, I was a Kevin Ayers freak, too. Yes. And um, I saw David Allen's spelling and said, hell, yeah. You know, so, and I started doing it. Don't ask me why. I just started doing it. Finally, my teachers gave up and let me use the name. You know, it's not a, 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 a legal name at all. So, yeah, it's just David. It's still David, but I call it. And I used to say I'm named after my two uncles, Dave and Ed. <laughs> Excellent. I like it. Yes. You know, you know, I just wanted. So, to, I just didn't want to get your name wrong. He went, no, you don't. Yeah, no, it's. That. I know, and but most people just you know just say say D A V I D, and I don't. You know, I don't really. It's not a, not a legal name, but you know, people that know me from the music business, you know, know that that's what I was doing. But yeah, you know, even David Thomas always referred to me as an amateur, even when I work with him. He's an amateur musician, <laughs> which I don't you know. He was covering himself in case it didn't work out. You know, kind of nice, nice. Well, look, only. You know, Sorry. only oh. David had asked me to to uh, to to play drums on two different tours, which is amazing. I Besides, know. you know the girls. So, so you got to play Europe as well as England. We did America, Canada, and then Europe mm-hmm. for the Wooden Birds. Fantastic. And the American was with Ralph Carney, and the uh, European was with um, with George Cartwright, and then of course on the record it was uh, Gerald Yellen on cello. But Gerald was with a group called the Ordinaires out of New York. So, yes. 
God, it's, so it's, a, they, it's, a, it's, a, it's an absolute history lesson. I hope I, I would be really appreciate it if you send me any little links. That would be amazing. So, oh, I will. I will. And like I said, I can't I can't remember the names of the le- of the labels that I'm on, which is feeding tube records, is what, what it's on. Feeding tube. Right. <laughs> and like I said, I have some of my own stuff on it, which I couldn't remember. Yes. But um Roger, without Roger Miller, none, none of this posthumous stuff would have happened. Roger uh, is, uh, is very prolific and, and very good at getting things done. So good he's the one that, that, huh? I said, good old Roger. Yeah. So I figured, you know, Mission of Burma probably. So Yes, I should check them out. Is there anybody else you would recommend? You say, God, you should get this this guy on your show. No, the only other band I would have recommended, you know, which I think was just amazing. I didn't even mention them was the Screamers because everybody knows the Germs and the you know, people because of Pat Smear and all that. Uh, he went on to do what, you know. So, but the the um, we actually got to meet them once. They came to Boston and then we had a, a brunch the next day, and I got to 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 the mingle with them. And they were really influenced by a lot of the same people we were influenced by, and they were much more arty and much cooler than we were but i think the, the uh, lead singer tomato is uh he passed away right. so um, and, uh, they, they, now the drum the uh, drummer and the uh keyboard guy i don't know if he, they're still around or not it was kick and then this is uh, somebody else but um the um <sighs> yeah so there's um yeah because because you know the only thing people know about there was search and destroy magazine with bell jones out of san francisco they went on to do uh research they went on to do um um editions and stuff of 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 the actual original um search and destroy magazines i mean that's how i found out about Peruvu. that's how i found out about you know a lot of the west coast stuff we found out about devo because of that you know, we were thrown in, you know, we played the MA 80 festival too. We were invited to represent Boston and that's when Devo was playing as Dove D O V E at Milwaukee right. at the art center in, 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 in 80. And, um, we got a lot of, uh, recognition from that show. And we also, um, were on the news. <laughs> they were, uh, they were chroma keying us, you know, behind the news people, when they were there, which was amazing. <laughs> And uh, punk rock comes to Minneapolis. That was what the headline was. And uh, Devo, and we already knew a, a couple members of the band, so they were like uh, helping us a lot too. They kept telling us to go to the the station and get a reel of that, you know, so we'd have it for posterity. But our manager was useless, so we didn't get it, get that done. But that's another show we did too yes. when I was in the. We also played played Chicago a, a couple times. For, uh, don't explain why but it was pretty wild but there's a great gig we did in chicago where the band guru guru the german band rock band showed up drunk out of their minds and they are like on the ground the, the members of the girls are riding them you know <laughs> they have cameras to, with the straps and so they're riding them like horses <laughs> and we're like doing like a uh, little suburban observatory or something with just this which in, ends up like a throbbing gristle song at the end with just everything electronically going on and, and we're like everywhere but the stage you know so yes <laughs> so there's a lot of we did do a lot a lot of live shows and stuff but um it's just a matter of documenting it you know so we did do a lot of stuff we did travel and things too so 
Yeah. Did but, you? Um, we were like a happening, you know. So. I was going to say it's a, it sounds a bit like a happening. Did you ever? Um, do you ever sort of meet up with the other bands, uh, other members of the girls to? Uh, um, uh, I used to be. I'm in contact with Robin Amos. He still lives in Cambridge, Mass. Um, and Mark Dagley lives in New Jersey. And then George Condo, I think, lives in the Hamptons and New York City. I know I, George has gotten so famous. I don't really, I mean, I could track him down. His daughter, Eleanor, has contacted me a few times because she wanted to get, there's a lot of videos of us and right. stuff. So, you know, And so I've shared stuff for her and then he's seen it through her. But um, uh, I haven't really talked to George in years. Haven't talked to Mark Dagley in years. But I have talked to like the, to Rob and every, every few years we check in. Yes. So everybody's alive, you know, so that's good. You know, nobody's died yet, thank goodness. Excellent. So, excellent. Yeah, yes. you know. Well, we just brilliant. haven't we just, you know, we just haven't really kept in touch, that's for sure. That's everybody's nice. doing their thing, but two two of the band members are painters and Robin still plays electronic music. He was playing electronic music with like a like a um uh, a metal band of some sort. I forgot what that, there was some term for that kind of music besides metal. It was some kind of weird thing he was doing. But now he's doing electronic stuff again. So, so he's back to doing his original stuff where he's composing and doing a lot of electronic pieces. And he's working with some other collaborators that do electronic music. But Robin was one of the first EML guys playing a uh, EML synthesizer, you know. And so he had a polyvox. We had one of the first sequencers, which is the size of a refrigerator. You know, you know, you know, we were doing a lot of uh, uh, pioneering along with Alan Ravenstein. Alan's deal was he didn't have a keyboard. He didn't have a poly box. He just played pots and potentiometers and stuff. Yeah, listen, I could talk for forever about all this stuff. So I know oh, you no, need it, to get going. It's, <laughs> it's no, that's fantastic. Well, look, thank you ever so much. And if you've got, you know, a few minutes, if you kind of got any links, that would be also great or any kind of, um, yes, things to check out. That would be amazing. But thank you I, for I, your time. You're more than welcome. Now, yeah, listen and thank you. I'm honored to somebody wants to talk about it. You know. So. Oh God, no, it's fantastic. Yeah. It's fantastic. Okay, look, I'll let you go, but thank you again and have a lovely day. Same, same to you, David. Nice meeting you. Yes, take care, and um, yes, I'll keep in touch. Thanks a lot. Okay, I can always send you the link as well. Right. Thank you. Take care. See you later. Bye. There you go, dear listener. That is the end of the interview. Indeed. Anyway, a massive thank you to David for giving me the time for that interview. This has been the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. I know, interesting. Uh, if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. All these have been archived on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, just do C86 Show. I know, it's that obvious. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.